This morning from the book of Jonah, chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. May these words lead us to the heart of God. Before we plunge into this story, just a quick question to begin. Do you know where Nineveh was located? Most of us do not, but in the back of your Bible, there's probably a map that could help you find it. But it was a place north and east of Israel on the Tigris River, as the text tells us, a very large city, a magnificent city, three days walk across, it said. Nineveh is a city in the Assyrian Empire, so Compared to Israel, more people, more land area, bigger military, a threat in a sense. Today, that same land area on your map is marked Iraq. I'm not sure what to make of the parallels between what we're going to talk about today, which happened in the 8th century BCE or before the Common Era, before Christ, and how we feel about the Iraqis now, but it would probably be good to kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we read through and think about this story this morning. The story tells us about this man of God named Jonah. Now, we didn't read the whole story, but you probably know the story. God calls Jonah says, go to Nineveh, into enemy territory, and proclaim this message of repentance. I've just told you that's north and east. Where did Jonah go? South and west. <laughs> Went to Joppa on the coast of the Mediterranean, boarded a ship. The ship gets into trouble. The people are trying to figure out why such a big storm has been cast down upon them. Jonah says, it's probably because I'm running from God, and they throw him overboard. But God provides this big fish to come scoop him up and give him a little alone time with God <laughs> to think about what God's call might be. The fish spits him up on the beach, and by then, Nineveh seems like maybe a good place to go as far as Jonah's concerned. Although he doesn't really want to go. Unlike Samuel that we read about last week, remember Samuel call, gets this call of God. He doesn't recognize it as first, but once Eli helps him, he's ready to say, Here I am, Lord. I'm listening. Speak to me. 
He answers in the affirmative. Jonah, not so much. But we have to wonder, why is Jonah running? He recognizes it as a call of God or Yahweh, the special name the Israelites have for God. He recognized that it's his God calling him, and he doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go to Assyria because he sees them as the enemy. He sees them as so different in customs, in worship, in the ways they live, in their culture, that he doesn't want to go spend time with those people, with those people. He sees them as a threat to his own existence and the existence of Israel. In a way, he's right, because we learn later in the story, not in Jonah, but in the Bible story, that sure enough, the Assyrians sweep down a few decades later and plunder the Israelites. But God is calling Yahweh, the Lord, is calling Jonah to go. The message is, go tell them that the way they are living is not right. The way they're acting is evil, and they should give up their violence, and they should give up their violent ways, and they should follow God, the Lord, Yahweh. Well, Jonah is a man of God and knows that his God, Yahweh, is merciful. And as a God who loves people. And if in fact he goes and these Assyrians repent, then God won't destroy them. And really it seems that Jonah wouldn't mind so much if God would destroy his enemies. I would imagine most of us have had a thought or two like that on occasion. Where someone who was acting in a different way or proclaiming a different thing... We began to feel so uncomfortable with them that we thought it might be better if God would just smite them, if they would just go away, if their kind would no longer exist. I think that's close to how Jonah is feeling when he gets this call from God. But realize how radical a message this is in a time where in these regions they all have their own gods competing gods competing peoples that Jonah's God the God of the Hebrews of the Israelites their special God who has delivered them from the hands of another enemy the Egyptians is now calling him to go to this enemy these people and proclaim a message of repentance but not just repentance, but call them to worship the same God, to join them in worship, to treat them as if they're a part of the community. What a radical message of love from God. That God is not only loving the saved, so to speak, not only loving his own people who acknowledge his deity, but is calling Jonah to go to a people who worship different 
gods or ignore Yahweh completely or even worse, are antagonistic toward Israel and Israel's God. Yet God desires something better for these people, for these Ninevites, for these Assyrians. I tried to think, how can we apply this to our own situation today? Can we believe that God loves lost people as much as God loves us? Can we believe that God loves people that don't come to church? Who maybe even attack those of us who go to church or go by the name Christian? Can we believe that God loves those who lie and cheat and steal and use and abuse? This message from Jonah is a radical one. God cares about people who may be very different from us. Even those that we might call enemy, that we might declare enemy. Can God care for those people the way God cares for us? I'll just tell you, it's a hard message to hear. It's a harder message to live out. I like church people. I like coming to church. I like being with you all. I like people who are good and kind and generous and gracious and complimentary and supportive. I like being in this group. So can you imagine hearing the call to say, I know you're comfortable there, but I need you to go over here. I know you like it where you are, but I need to go, need someone to go over there. It doesn't say because they are good people or faithful people. It seems to indicate God wants Jonah to go over there because those people over there need help. God seems to think they need a relationship with the divine that they need a different kind of spiritual experience so God calls Jonah and says go this is a God of second chances at work here Jonah has run given the first opportunity the first call has run away Given a second opportunity in kind of a legendary way, decides to go. And yet he's still angry. He knows he's been given a second chance. But it still kind of ticks him off that God wants to give these Assyrians a second chance. Leslie D. Weatherhead was one of the great Methodist preachers from Britain in the last century told a story of when he was young it was world war one he was sent to the middle east he said it was terrible being there but while he was there he had an opportunity to observe the greatest carpet makers in the world those who were the ones weaving persian rugs and he said he had a guide that day when he went to this place where they were making the rugs 
And the guide pointed out to him that on one side were those who were doing the weaving, and on the other side was a great artist who was watching the threads being woven together. They had a pattern to begin with that they're supposed to follow, but the guide said inevitably mistakes were made in either color or design. It was the job of the great artist who's watching the weaving happening to see the mistake and then figure out quickly how to weave the mistake into the design without having to start over and without decreasing the value of the rug. That if the artist was really great, the guide said, he could weave any mistake of color or thread into the pattern so at the end it was still a magnificent carpet. And he said then at the end the workers join the artist and are able to look at what their cooperative efforts have created. Usually a masterpiece. And Weatherhead says during World War I and then later in his life when things went awry and he could not discern the pattern or the plan or the purposes of God at work in this, he would think of the parable of the Persian carpet. That perhaps there is a great artist, he said, at work beyond our gaze, working from the other side to weave meaning and beauty and majesty into all that we experience. Weatherhead says, it's an act of faith to trust that God is at work like that from the other side, even when we cannot see it ourselves. Well, the book of Jonah tells us this legendary story of Jonah running from God. But finally, Jonah arrives in Nineveh says he finally gets there in this huge city. He begins to march into the middle of it. He walks a day's walk in, it says, declaring to them in verse 4, 40 days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And there's an exclamation in my Bible. It may mean that he spoke it loudly, but I kind of hear it like he's speaking it with a little bit of relish in his voice. Just 40 more days and you guys will be done with. 40 more days and it's all over. But exactly what he was afraid of, what he's afraid they might do, is exactly what they do. They listen and repent. The text says, every one of them, great and small, all the way up to the king, Listen and repent. They declare a fast. They put on sackcloth. They are ready to change their ways. The irony in the story is that everybody repents, it says, except Jonah, the man of God, the one called of God, the one who already knows Yahweh as his God. If you read on in Jonah, He's pretty much angry till the end of the book. He's mad at God for being so kind and gracious to the enemy, to these people. 
even though he has responded and declared and shared the proclamation that they need to repent and change their evil ways and move away from violence, he's a little bit upset when they actually listen and all of them repent. And God shows graciousness and kindness to these enemy people. It's a peculiar story. It raises lots of questions in my mind, maybe some in yours as well. I put a few of them in your outline to think about. Where are you in your relationship with God? Are you running from God or are you running toward God? Do you trust God loves you even with your foibles or do you believe that God only loves you when you're perfect or really good or excelling? Or do you trust God's love at work in your life all the time? Could it be that God loves not only us also our enemies are we better off to go on our own way or to go the way of God you may add your own questions to this but important questions to contemplate as we think about our own journey of faith and where we are in our relationship with God while you think about that, I've got one last idea to share. It's a reflection a church member sent me decades ago, but I think it can help us today. It's entitled, Hands. It reads like this. A basketball in my hands is worth about $19. A basketball in Michael Jordan's hands was worth about $33 million. It depends on whose hands it's in. A baseball bat in my hands is worth about $6. A baseball bat in Mark McGuire's hands was worth about $19 million. A golf club in my hands is almost useless. <laughs> Not really true for me. But. A golf club in the hands of Tiger Woods is worth one major golf championship after another because it depends on whose hands it's in. A rod in my hands might chase away a barking dog. A rod in Moses' hands will part a mighty sea. A slingshot in my hands is a toy. A slingshot in David's hands is a mighty instrument of God. It depends on whose hands it's in. Five loaves and two fish in my hands, a couple of fish sandwiches. Five loaves and two fish in Jesus' hands will feed the masses. It depends on whose hands it's in. Nails in my hand might produce a birdhouse. Nails in the hands of Christ Jesus can provide salvation for an entire world. It depends on whose hands. It's in. The email ended like this. As you can see now, it depends on whose hands it's in. 
So put your concerns, your worries, your fears, your hopes, your dreams, your families, and your relationships in God's hands because it depends on whose hands they're in. Amen. And thanks be to God.